Welcome to The Fairer Sense. With me, Tanya. And me, Kara. Women, money, and the fight to break even. Because we give a shit. And you should too. of Reproduction Part 1, The Choice Not to Give Birth. Hey, Tanya. Hey, Kara. How is it going? Welcome back to the United States of America. It is true. Fun fact, for those who don't know, mainly because I haven't talked about this on the internet at all, but I've been home like 10 days in my own bed since the end of August. And so most recently, I just spent a whole month in Ecuador, which was wonderful, but also tiring. And it's just, you know, it's nice to be back at home and have my own kitchen, (laughs) not be at like 12,000 feet every day, even though I live at 6,000 feet, it's still like the altitude in Ecuador is no joke. Yeah, 12,000 feet sounds... Hi. I'm having a hard time even picturing that, really. I feel really lucky to have gotten the time there. We went to the Galapagos. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. And uh, yeah, now <laughs> now looking forward to living more cheaply and just eating at home, <laughs> Yeah, not spending money. We're recording on Cyber Monday after Black Friday. So uh, yeah, it's an easy day to spend money, but trying hard to resist. I will say that I have not bought anything today, no plans to, but I did partake in a little Black Friday shopping. I mostly stocked up on my nighttime moisturizer because I had very bad skin as a teen. I think we've talked about this before, and now I've got good skin, and I'm very... I'm not even going to lie. I don't even care if people think this is a negative word. I'm like very vain about keeping it as good as it can, so stocked up. Thank you, Target. I think there is no shame in any part of that. Uh, Wanting to keep your skin looking good is completely valid. And that's the thing too. Like it's easy to say, oh, Black Friday's bad or Cyber Monday's bad, but it's only bad if you're buying stuff you wouldn't use. If you're stocking up on things you would buy anyway and you're getting a better deal, that's how you should do it. I I fully confess to buying some stuff during the last Sephora sale because the only moisturizer I've ever found that doesn't break me out is kind of expensive. And if I can get it for less, I'm going to do that. Hell yeah, saving that money. We're not going to talk about that though, (laughs) because I feel like we could easily discuss that. We do have an episode on beauty standards. Please go find that. But today we are here to talk about birth control and abortion and the economics of both. It's so common when we talk about abortion in particular, but also to some extent birth control, to really get to the core principle of it, which is this crazy idea like, oh, women should be treated like human beings with full bodily autonomy and should have the same rights as men. And yes, that is all absolutely true. But we're not going to talk about that side of it today. We're going to talk in the fairer sense style about the economics, about what birth control access and abortion access or lack thereof mean for women economically, socioeconomically, generationally. There's so much that's wrapped up into it. And you could very fairly have a discussion about whether a lot of that is actually the whole point, if it's actually about oppressing women economically. I felt really strongly about doing this episode because these are both topics that are really important to me. And I have to say, I felt pretty informed going into it, but talking to our really amazing guests and doing more research on it, digging into the long-term financial repercussions of both birth control access and abortion access or lack thereof is really interesting. And we have actual data to show us the good, the bad, and the ugly of these things. And I think going back in time and thinking, I mean, 
I'm 31. I've always had access to birth control. And I will say it has sort of at times been a little bit of a pain in the butt to get it, but it's never been difficult. And I'm so grateful for that because you go back not that long ago and you find some really archaic laws and some huge roadblocks. And you can see the tipping point in society when birth control, when abortion became accessible, how much that changed women's and also just people who can get pregnant. Because I want to say too here that not just women can get pregnant. It changed opportunities, it changed finances, and it changed really the cultural conversation about what people who could get pregnant could contribute to society. Women and those who can get pregnant are subject to some really specific types of economic challenges that are all about others legislating our bodies and our abilities to make decisions. We have some really amazing interviews today and we don't want to blow up their spot. So we're just going to go ahead and get into those interviews. Let's do it. Our first interview today is about birth control access in particular for all women, but also women of color and poor women. And I spoke to Bridget Corteau, who is a senior research associate in the Urban Institute's Health Policy Center, about exactly that, about what access to birth control has meant to women economically and financially. When we talk about birth control becoming broadly available to women, we're really focused mostly on the 60s and 70s when the contraceptive pill became available to women was was approved by the FDA. And so much of the research really focuses on that period and beyond. Before that period, women didn't have as much control over whether and when they were going to have children. That's really what modern birth control access has done for them. And so in that period before modern birth control, fewer women were able to participate in the workforce. There were larger wage gaps between women and men. Women were less able to enroll in college. Um, There were higher dropout rates in college. Fewer women were in skilled careers and able to get degrees in medicine and law and dentistry. Half of those degrees go to women. Um, Half of PhDs go to women. So really, birth control has been transformative in allowing women to participate more fully in the economic sphere and in the social sphere. I hadn't thought about the advanced degree aspect of it, but that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'm sure it's hard to disaggregate some of that from just the overall culture that said women belonged at home. Have you been able to separate any of that to say, no, this is what birth control did versus just changing attitudes about the role of women? That's an important point because I think that was also happening at the same time, right? In the 60s and 70s, there were there was also movement towards more women working outside of the home. And I think it is really hard to disentangle those sort of cultural changes from birth control because birth control was helping women be able to do that. And so there is research specifically looking at access to the birth control pill. So comparing women, young women in the period before the pill became available in the 60s and 70s to women and what they were able to do after the pill became available. And even some research that looks at women who had access within the same time period who did and did not have access to the contraceptive pill. And that research is showing lifelong positive impacts on earnings more investment in education and career, more ability to secure partnerships or marriage, if that's what women want, before they have kids. Research also ties those benefits not just to women, but to the families that they do eventually have. And so, you know, research shows that there are benefits in living conditions for kids of those women. So in those children's household income, in their longer term earnings, in their educational attainment. But 
I think you're, you're you're exactly right that at the same time there is sort of this cultural change in expectations for women in the labor force and outside the home. But in my mind, it's not about disentangling those, but just understanding that birth control allowed for that to happen and sort of drove some of that cultural change as well. In terms of today, then, what are the current barriers that women face to accessing birth control? And obviously now we have a lot more choices beyond just the pill, some that you go get at the pharmacy, some that you have put into your body for some lengthy period of time. But curious what those barriers are and which ones are real and which ones are just perceived barriers. That's a lot of the research that that we've done um, here at the Urban Institute and our reproductive health access work. We've done a lot of qualitative research to really try to get at this question of what motivates women to avoid an unintended pregnancy and what are some of the barriers that they're experiencing to contraception. One thing that rises to the top is cost uh, as a major concern for women, especially in the qualitative work that we've done, where we've done focus groups and interviews with women. Some of this is real, and you're right, some of it is perceived cost, uh, because many of these women do have coverage, and so the coverage situations that they described to us would lead us to believe that they should have access to free to them, no cost birth control because they're an ACA compliant plans or Medicaid. So, you know, those perceptions may not be necessarily verified by them or by their healthcare providers. It may be misinformation they're getting from their health insurer. Maybe their health insurer isn't complying with with healthcare laws. But what we do know is that this cost barrier, whether real or perceived, does influence whether women are getting the care that they need, the contraceptive care that they need. A really important piece in the cost issue is access to health insurance. And so most of the women that we've spoken with do have health insurance, but most of them have also experienced gaps in coverage over their lives. And they've told us that when they didn't have coverage, they delayed or they didn't get the birth control that they needed, or they made choices where they went for a less effective method because it was more affordable for them. We also know that while the ACA has improved access to health insurance for women, and there have been pretty significant declines um, in uninsurance for women of reproductive age, there's still around 11% of women in that age category who don't have coverage. Um, And that's about 7 million women. So it's, you know, it's not a small number. And there are also groups of women that are more likely to not have coverage. Women of color, single mothers, non-citizens, women with low income or lower educational attainment, they're all more likely to, to be in that uninsured population. Insurance, of course, is a major factor in whether women can afford birth control. Some other barriers that, that we've come across are knowledge gaps and misinformation. Women not understanding you know, what's available to them. When we talk about low-income women and women of color in particular, or other women who are underserved in various ways, what challenges do they face that are different from the general population in terms of birth control access or just kind of the economics of all of this? Low-income women and, and women of color disproportionately encounter some of the obstacles that, that I just mentioned when we were talking about barriers. So cost-related barriers, certainly they're more likely, as I mentioned, to be in the group of women who are still uninsured. We do see differences by race and ethnicity in birth control use. So we know women of color are less likely to use more effective birth control methods. They have higher rates of unintended pregnancy. And some of the barriers like cost insurance coverage, access to transportation are exacerbated for them when you're comparing them to the general population. Another important piece is that these groups of women are more dependent on public coverage. Those programs are subject to state budget cuts and federal and state policy changes, changes that affect Medicaid access and access to Title X are going to affect those those populations more. 
Another important piece that I don't want to leave out is that this is to do with women of color specifically, is that we really need to think about how women of color's attitudes about birth control are shaped by their history with the medical system. You know, that's a history of racism and discrimination, of reproductive coercion. This has created distrust, understandably, with the medical system and who may be less likely, for instance, to want to have an IUD inserted, especially understanding that 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 type of birth control is dependent on a provider being able to remove it at a later point. That history also needs to be considered when we're thinking about barriers to reproductive access for women of color. It seems like we have a big chain here of a healthcare system that has a long history of being both racist and not listening to women and discounting women's pain, all of those things that we know, then, you know, that's a barrier to to a lot of women of color, low-income women seeking birth control. And then that impacts their economic lives the way that this stuff did for all women before there was any birth control. I mean, like in, in your view, what is the place where we could focus our efforts that would have the greatest impact? Is it trying to reduce misinformation? Is it trying to fix the healthcare system so that we can start to rebuild some of that trust? What do you think is the biggest thing we need to do to help more women have access to birth control consistently? Sort of a, two, a twofer in my mind. I really think first we need to maintain and protect the safety net of family planning care for women. And so the most vulnerable populations, women who already are, are facing the, the most barriers to access to all types of health control, including reproductive care, they're relying on those federally qualified health centers, which have a large proportion, serve a large proportion of Medicaid and uninsured patients. And so we need to make sure that that safety net remains intact. And you know that's certainly under threat right now we might see changes to access in the future because of that. I think Planned Parenthood's departure um, and, and other family planning clinics departure from Title X, I think the, the effects of that really remain to be seen. That's still a very recent policy change, and there are emergency funds that are really going to prop up those clinics in the short term. But in the long term, those are not solutions that will really maintain the safety net. And I think that's key. That safety net has been really important to ensuring access for those populations that we're talking about, for low-income women, for women of color, for immigrants, for a lot of less advantaged populations. But I think a second piece is really that we do need to improve counseling and the way that services are provided. So this is more on the delivery side and not really sort of the financing side. And the focus really needs to be on what's right for an individual woman and what are her desires for family size, what are her desires for the type of method she's most interested in. And women need information about and options. They need access to the, a range of contraceptive methods. That's what we hear in our qualitative research with women. They want availability because sometimes they might try lots of different methods before they find something that works for them. They may prefer or have had bad experiences with hormones. So they want to have access to non-hormonal methods. And this sort of needs and preferences really needs to come into the, to factor into the conversation. It cannot be a conversation solely focused on what the most effective method is. Providers can be very focused on that and insurers, payers can be very focused on that too. But the conversation really has to be bigger than that to really serve women's needs. My money journey began because I had a fair amount of debt and a teensy income. Figuring out a plan for my debt was hard, and I felt like there weren't tools for people like me. 
Upstart is a new type of lending company. They believe that you are more than your credit score and that everyone deserves tools to get out of debt, especially that killer high interest debt. By using your education and job history, Upstart goes beyond traditional credit score assessments when it comes to figuring out your credit worthiness. Did you know more than four in five Americans have never defaulted on a loan, and yet less than half of Americans have access to prime credit? That's bonkers. Upstart is looking to change that and get more people qualified for loans they can use to change their lives. Upstart is ranked number one in lenders on Trustpilot. Head to upstart.com TFC to see how low your Upstart rate is. Over 300,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or to meet their financial goals. If you're ready to get out of debt and just need a little help, let Upstart be the tool to do it. Head to upstart.com TFC. Big thanks to cloud accounting software FreshBooks for sponsoring season four of The Fairer Sense, the third season of the show they've sponsored in its entirety. We love FreshBooks, both because they've been such a big supporter of The Fairer Sense and because they provide the simplest, easiest to use cloud accounting software out there, which you can try by visiting freshbooks.com TFC. If you're a small business owner or freelancer, there are so many things you have to think about from actually making money to keeping track of it. FreshBooks takes the work out of getting paid, so you can focus on doing the work you need to do to keep your business running. With FreshBooks, you can create a customized invoice, track all your income, and link a business credit card to automatically track business spending. FreshBooks makes it super simple to do your accounting, and it makes accounting one less thing you need to worry about as a business owner, so you can focus instead on crushing the financial patriarchy. Head to freshbooks.com slash TFC to claim your 30-day free trial and enter the fairer sense in the how did you hear about us section. You get to try a great product while supporting us. That's freshbooks.com slash TFC. I spoke with Anna Bernstein, who has her master's in public health and who works for the Institute for Women's Policy Research about abortion. And specifically, we got into the question of what does abortion do for people who can get pregnant in a financial sense? We know that being able to control your reproductive life and decide when, whether, how to have children is central to someone's well-being. And abortion access is a key part of that. There's actually a body of research that looks at the legalization of abortion in the 1970s and its effects on economic outcomes like education and labor force participation. And this evidence actually uses some sophisticated econometric methods that allows us to look at a causal relationship. So it shows us what the direct results of abortion legalization are for women that were able to access abortion in different years in different states. And it actually shows us that abortion legalization increased women's educational attainment and their participation in the workforce. So because of access to abortion, women were actually able to participate in the workforce at higher rates than they were before abortion access. But there's more recent research that supports what might seem kind of common sense that access to abortion affects economic outcomes. The Turnaway study out of the University of California, San Francisco, looks at women who are denied access to abortion because of term limits and women who receive abortion care. And a lot of these women are at the same gestation, just in different places, different clinics that provide care at different weeks. They find that women that are actually able to receive the wanted abortions are less likely to experience economic hardship and insecurity, 
even years after seeking that care when they're compared to women who were denied wanted abortion. So this sort of provides evidence for something that might seem obvious because if having a child is obviously an expense. So this sort of looks at abortion access specifically and what that's done for women's economic outcomes. What does it look like when states or the federal government limit access to abortion? Like, what are some of the implications of that? Can you just talk a little bit more about what limiting access does when it comes from the state? Those studies I spoke about obviously just look at abortion legalization as a binary, but abortion legality doesn't necessarily equate to abortion access. We know that at the state level, there's a lot of different ways that abortion is being restricted for women. And one of these ways is through payment. So funding for abortion in the U.S. is heavily restricted. So the Hyde Amendment prohibits federal Medicaid dollars from covering abortion care, with a few exceptions. And most states follow the same standard and don't allow state Medicaid funds to cover abortion care. So this means that the most economically vulnerable people are often left to pay out of pocket for abortion care. And this isn't really an insignificant cost. The average abortion at 10 weeks is about $500. So in many cases, patients are foregoing necessary expenses like rent or groceries, or they're borrowing money to cover the cost. It's particularly relevant because we know that the majority of abortion patients are low income, with about half living below the federal poverty level. Even among people with private insurance, the majority end up paying out of pocket. And many states have additional restrictions that prohibit private insurance plans from covering abortion. So there's a number of barriers just in terms of payment. And then some of those restrictions kind of compound this cost. So if women have to go to a clinic twice, if they have waiting periods and two visit requirements, and if they have to travel to these clinics, that's going to add travel costs, lost wages if they have to take off work and don't have paid leave, and childcare costs since the majority of abortion patients are already parents. I mean, it's just really unlike any other medical procedure. And because of all these costs, there are organizations called abortion funds that exist to sort of help meet this need. They help patients pay for abortions and in many cases help them with these ancillary costs like childcare, transportation. They have folks that will volunteer and drive people to clinics if they don't have someone to accompany them. These funds are amazing and they do great work, but they're dependent on donations and they're often all volunteer run. They're obviously not going to meet the need. So let's talk about cost in bigger terms, because when people are forced to remain pregnant or they are forced to give birth against their wishes because they can't access an abortion, it creates a social burden that they or their families or really all of society and ultimately the taxpayers have to carry. So how does abortion access lessen the weight on social programs in the United States and how does it impact broader federal programming? You know, allowing individuals to control their reproductive lives and choose when, whether, how to parent allows them to make the decisions that are going to be the best for them. And that includes financially. So limiting those decisions is not in the best interest of individuals and families or the country as a whole. There's some research comparing women who received wanted abortions and women who were denied them. And not only do those women who receive the abortions that they seek have better economic outcomes, but it also extends to their families. So existing children of women who are denied abortions were more likely to live in poverty than the children of women who received abortion care. And they also looked at the children born after the denial of abortion to women who subsequently had children after receiving the abortion care. And the children of women who were denied abortion were also more likely to live in poverty. So we know that individuals and families will make the best decisions for them. And the research that I spoke about earlier that looks at these causal relationships between abortion legalization and economic outcomes found that even the next generation 
after the women who received legal access to abortion had better outcomes. So cohorts had better educational and economic outcomes after abortion legalization. And this extended to childhood and later in life. So those this generation as adults were less likely to receive public assistance. a surprise, but it definitely struck me in both of those interviews how similar things are for women economically and those who can get pregnant in terms of access to birth control and access to abortion. That essentially we're talking about giving women the means to not be forced to give birth and not be forced to stay home with children, not be forced into all the things that go along with having kids that we know are very, very expensive in our society and cost a lot of opportunity. But it's interesting how you tend to see all the same trend lines that go along with that of the more that we can let women make these choices about whether they want to give birth at all or when to do it, the better it is for women and not just women, but their children. Yeah, I think that really wowed me too is how all of the research that both of our fabulous guests showed us shows that having this access really impacts finances generationally. I mean, the fact that children of women who had access to birth control and who had access to abortion were better off economically than children of women who did not have access to those services, I think really speaks volumes about the impact that being able to control your reproductive system does for a family, but then also zooms out and does for a society. It's one of these things where like, it's hard right now for me to not get too political. But, you know, when you're making your primary argument against birth control being covered or abortion being legal at all, when your argument is about unborn children and caring about children, there is the other side of it, which is if if you truly care about children, particularly poor children, know that they are better off if their mothers are not being forced to have more kids than they want to have or can afford to have or are physically capable of bearing. And that's really important for kids, too, in terms of how they grow up and generational wealth. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I'm in Texas, which is famously anti-abortion and also really anti-birth control and anti-sex education. T-Bone went to high school 30 minutes outside of Austin, which is the blue dot in the Red Sea, right? And he didn't have any sex education. Like it just never came up. And I had really comprehensive sex education in Massachusetts. But this year, 2019, there was a bill that was put forth by Representative Tony Tinterholt, who is a Republican here in Texas, that quite literally wanted to charge women who received an abortion with homicide and it could carry the death penalty. Texas kills the most people out of any state in the U.S. But to your point, it's like, how can you say that you are a pro-life state or government representative when you're willing to kill people and when you're not willing to put money or funding or education in place to 
prevent these types of unwanted births. It's just like economically, it makes no sense. Morally, it makes no sense. It seems just like such a weird roundabout way of saying like, we hate you. And I just think that if we could just admit that you hate women, that'd be way better. I also want to just take a second and talk about the economics of even just getting access to these things. Like if you live in a state like Texas, as opposed to a state like Massachusetts, the path to getting an abortion specifically is very different. So in Texas, you have to make at least two trips to see an abortion provider. You have to find a doctor and you have to go see a doctor and say, hey, I want an abortion. And then the state requires you to undergo a sonogram and a a transvaginal sonogram, which is a real bummer. You have to fill out all this paperwork and then you have to leave for 24 hours before you can come back and get the actual abortion. You have to see the same doctor for both visits. So if their schedule is full or something, this waiting period could go even longer. And the costs associated with all of that with like Texas is a huge state, right? If you are up in Lubbock and you have to travel to Austin, I mean, that is a multi-hour drive. And then you have to spend the night here. Maybe you have to take time off of work. It's crazy to me. It's absolutely bonkers to me that this is not a part of the conversation around the cost of an abortion and the cost of reproductive justice. A hundred percent. And that stuff is on purpose. Those things are written into the law to make it so fewer women will have the procedure, that there will be all these hurdles you have to jump over and only a few women will be able to clear them all. That is absolutely true. I've, I've read some really harrowing stories that we'll link to in the show notes from women who've had late-term abortions, which is, I think, a procedure that's especially villainized as somehow women are just waking up one day and going like, oh, I was going to have a baby, but you know what? Nah. When really, like, that's not at all what is happening in those cases. Every single late-term abortion that's happening is happening because something has gone tragically wrong and a very wanted child is no longer viable. And so some of these stories of hoops that women have to jump through, even if they're coming from very liberal states, having to fly to another state to have the pregnancy terminated, but then having to fly back home and do a stillbirth labor and still go through labor, like these horrible, horrible stories that have not just a very real emotional cost for women, but also a huge financial one of who can afford to fly to another state to pay cash for one provider and then go back and do something in the hospital at home. I mean, all the time you'd have to take away from work. I mean, these are things that just most women are not in a position to do. The hoops we're making, people jump through. There's also just like no science in the laws and restrictions. Like as we're recording, Ohio is currently debating a bill that would force doctors to re-implant ectopic pregnancy or face murder charges for abortion. And so here's the thing. Reimplanting ectopic pregnancy is like not a thing. It doesn't exist in medical science. We're talking about lawmakers who have no background in medicine writing these laws, which are clearly meant to limit abortion, limit women's economic opportunity, but they're built on this basis of like fake science that, you know, has no place in reality. And I think anyone who pays attention to this stuff can't help but be outraged because at least include women and doctors in these conversations if you're going to pass laws about this. Never mind that if these were laws we were passing on men, I mean, none of this would ever be happening, but that's a whole different thing. Yeah. You know, and to go back to your point earlier of like who can afford this, something that Bridget touched on in your interview was women who don't have health care 
delay getting birth control, avoid getting birth control, or use less effective means of birth control. And that's the thing that I think about a lot because I'm on the ACA and I don't have very good health care, which is fine. I'm a generally very healthy person, but I have to have birth control. I have to have it. That is essential to my health. And thank goodness the ACA does cover through the Well Women program. I get to have a pap smear every year and I get free birth control. But I am in, again, in Texas. The biggest hospital system here and the biggest doctor system here is Seton Healthcare, which is a Catholic hospital. And so that's where my general practitioner is. So I have to go in, have my whole like exam, do the whole thing, and then get a like fake referral <laughs> to a gynecologist because they can't give me birth control at Seton because it's against the Catholic standards. And like I work for myself. Anytime I am not working, I am not earning money. Honestly, it's lucky for me that I work for myself because I have the schedule flexibility to go into the Seton doctor, do the whole thing, get my blood tested, whatever, and then get the referral, go make the appointment at the non-Seton gynecologist to get my friggin' birth control in. I mean, it's it's outrageous, the hoops that people are asked to jump through and the financial impacts. I mean, I just recently got my next plan on replaced. I did this in early November 2019. And I would say it was about six hours of my time I had to pay for parking. And just like, that's a huge chunk of my time. But if you follow this out, people who don't have health care or people who have even crappier health care or further barriers to jump through, it can be so much money lost. And I think that that when we talk about the economics of this, it's not just the cost of these things, what we're paying out of pocket. It's the time cost. It's the opportunity cost. I really want listeners to keep that in mind especially because you see such massive divides based on income, that those who have the biggest benefit from receiving birth control or abortion are women who are lower income. And they are also the ones who are most likely to be earning minimum wage, not have any kind of paid sick leave, not have any kind of paid family leave, like the types of things that some of the rest of us take for granted. And that stuff, as you said, every single barrier that people lay down is very real and will reduce the number of people who get something. That That's not done by accident. The process to re-enroll in food stamps is onerous on purpose so that some percentage of people will not make it through the re-enrollment process, even though they still qualify. I mean, this is kind of true of every government program we see written by people who don't want those programs to exist, but rather than be able to kill them because people understand the necessity of them, they just make them incredibly hard to access and stay in. I could very easily go get birth control right now. I have the time to go to the doctor and sit through whatever. The last time I had my IUD replaced, I took Mark with me because I wanted him to see how much it sucks. <laughs> and like we were both able to take the time off and do that. But we had really great jobs that had sick time and had, you know, I mean, honestly, even without sick time, you could just sort of disappear for a few hours and nobody would notice. It didn't mean losing hourly paychecks or not being able to take on a project that would have paid me a freelance rate. Like it didn't change anything about our money. And so thinking about how different these impacts are and how much more necessary they are for those who are already in the worst shape in our society. I mean, it's just, it's really, really critical that we talk about abortion and birth control through that economic lens and not just through this lens of morality and right and wrong and all of that stuff, which is where it normally gets stuck. Yeah. The last time we discussed abortion on this show, we, I think, Tanya, you said something like, I don't think you can be a feminist without being pro-choice. And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> um, and we got several angry emails. Here's what I want to say to those listeners. First of all, thank you for listening. I really appreciate you tuning in. 
And I'm not trying to pick a fight with you. I just hope that looking through this economic lens, this financial lens, and thinking about situations outside of your own can hopefully inspire you to understand how, even if you do not want to take advantage of something like a medical procedure, somebody might need that. And when I say need, I mean it in the purest form. It's just something I think everyone should be sitting with in this discussion more so, maybe not more so, but in addition to the kind of moral side of things. I think it's always really important that we own up to past thoughts we've had that are problematic or you know things like that, even if we meant well, because this is how we evolve. And so I always share this stuff to just give you permission to have had imperfect thoughts in the past and to encourage you to keep evolving and keep trying to, to be better. I mean, for a long time, what I said was, oh, I would never have an abortion myself, but I still want it to be available to others. And I've realized that saying things like that, saying, oh, I would never have one myself, it puts a moral judgment out there that doesn't belong in the conversation. That saying, I would never have one myself, but I want it to be legal for others is judging those who do it. It's it's like Obama. He used to say this line of, you know, we may not agree about what to do about unwanted pregnancies, but we should all be able to agree that abortion should be rare. And at the time, I do think that was the right sentiment. You know, thinking about the political environment at the time, that was an effective line. But it also puts that judgment there again. It says that having an abortion is bad or having, you know, needing birth control is somehow bad. We don't judge men for needing birth control the way that we judge women for needing it. We don't judge men whose partners have abortions the way that we judge the women who have them. So some of that language, too, I think is really important to examine that it's not just about looking at and acknowledging the economics, but actually looking at how we talk about it and what it says about those who have abortion and how it helps to prop up this false debate about what should be accessible and to whom when we need to say this is a medical procedure or this is medical treatment that's between a woman and her doctor or a person who can get pregnant and that person's doctor, not something that we should all be legislating. And, you know, if it's not rare, like that's not our business rather than putting this coded moral judgment on it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really have anything else to say. So if you want to write us an angry email or a hell yeah email, <laughs> you can find us at fairersense at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at fairersense or slide into our DMs on Instagram, which is also at fairersense. As we're doing this season, we're going to keep talking about this issue of giving birth, the economics of giving birth. In this case, this week, we talked about not giving birth, and we'll be back in a few weeks with the other side of it, which is what does it actually cost women to give birth and not just sort of like the hospital bill, but all the aspects that go along with that and reproductive justice, not just in terms of not reproducing, but reproductive justice for those who are reproducing. So lots more to say on this very complex topic. Yeah, this is really one that we could have, frankly, like a whole season on. (laughs) I think that's true of almost every topic we end up. It's true. We really go big. So, which I love. It's great. It needs to be done. And um, I'm glad we're doing it. Lots more to say on this. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your thoughts. 
Yes. And if you want, we would love for you to leave a review. It's super easy to do on an iPhone. I actually just switched to the Google Pixel family and I honestly have no idea how to leave a review, but (laughs) your reviews help so, so much. Um, They mean so much to us. We share them liberally on our social media. So help us out. Leave a review. For those who've left reviews in the past, thank you so, so much. We really appreciate you. Go do it if you haven't done it. And until next time, stay rad. Stay rad. Fairer Sense are Kara Perez and me, Tanya Hester. Editing by me. Our theme song is by The Insider, and all other music is courtesy of the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can always find me at ournextlife.com and Kara at bravelygo.co. I think you should say that. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just looking for you to... Uh, okay.